Welcome to The Film Show on KBOO. I'm S.W. Conser, and today we're bringing you a preview of the 45th Annual Portland Filmmakers Festival. Our good friend Ben Pop is in the studio. Hello, Ben. Hello, Conch. How are you? Good, good. Ben is the programmer for the Northwest Film Center, and he's joined by two local filmmakers, Paula Bernstein and Edward Peck Davey. Welcome to both of you. Thank you. Thank you. Nice to be here. Well, uh, the festival is going to be running from Halloween through... Um, uh, November 5th. Monday. November 5th, which is uh, um, Guy Fox Day, right? Oh, I don't know. Yeah. Well, I know that the in other... the middle we have daylight savings. Right. Oh, yeah. So that's going to mess with your schedule a little <laughs> bit. Well, uh, yeah, listeners can find a full calendar of screenings and events at nwfilm.org where uh, you'll have to watch out for the time change. But, uh, yeah, we're going to be asking Edward and Paula about their films, which are going to be playing at the festival. But first, what I want to do is I want to hop into the Wayback Machine and play a conversation with Quinn Costello. Uh, Quinn is a documentarian. His new film is Rodents of Unusual Size. Uh, he was in town for a screening of that, and the documentary will be airing on PBS on their show Independent Lens in January. So let's hear Quinn talk about that film. I'm here in the studio with Quinn Costello. He's the co-director, along with Chris Metzler, of Rodents of Unusual Size. This is a documentary uh, shot down in Louisiana. Well, Quinn, tell us about the film. Sure, yeah. Thanks so much for having me on the show. Uh, it was a film that took about four years to make, uh, all told. Um, it was shot in the swamps of Louisiana, and it follows the Nutria, which is like this 20-pound invasive rodent that is running roughshod all over the state and uh, a huge scourge and originally uh, from south america is that right from argentina that's right and uh they are a big problem because they eat all the plants that kind of guard against hurricanes and help reinforce the land and so as louisiana disappears and it's losing about a uh, football field of land every hour these giant rodents are a huge part of that problem we actually have nutria here in Oregon, and a lot of times when people see a beaver, or what they think is a beaver, out in, say, Beaverton, it's actually a nutria. It doesn't have the paddle tail. It's got uh, the uh, orange rat tail and the orange teeth. There's that weird moment of kind of horror and realization when people think that they're just going to see a beaver, which are pretty cute, right? And then they realize, <laughs> like, oh, my God, that's not a beaver. It's got a long rat tail and these bright orange teeth and it kind of is uh it goes from being totally endearing to totally uh to just a feeling of utter revulsion usually so you know there's a, there are a lot of different perspectives on whether or not they're cute you know but depending on the context if you see them swimming around in the swamp they look like pretty monstrous well the title character in the film rodents of unusual size is the nutria but the film is really following all of these people, these natives of South Louisiana and fans of uh, HBO's show Treme will recognize Kermit Ruffins, the jazz trumpeter who uh, makes a point of roasting Nutria outside his concerts. Yeah, that's right. I mean, Kermit is uh, is a legendary fixture in New Orleans and an amazing jazz trumpet player, but his 
real passion is cooking, you know. And we went to one of his shows, and we were talking with him afterwards. And he asked us why we were in town, and we told him we were making a movie about Nutria. And he was like, oh, my God, I love Nutria. I'll barbecue one for you in front of my bar in a couple of days, you know. And uh, we, you know, jumped at the opportunity. And I mean, and it's fun to watch people who are drifting by outside look and see, like, oh, my God, is Kermit cooking a rat, you know. And they're like, I'll never try it. I'll never try it. But after kind of watching him for a while and, you know, uh, seeing it come together and the smells start wafting up, people start to change their minds. And it is delicious. It is delicious. What would you compare it to? Rabbit. Oh, really? Okay. So kind of lean, you have to... uh... Yeah, it's lean and it's... uh... It's a vegetarian animal, you know, so it's very uh, lean. It's not very fatty meat. And um, that was one of the reasons why the state implemented this program when they were first starting to reckon with the problem of the nutria of we're just going to get people to eat them out of existence. So they invested all this money in a PR campaign, you know, where they were getting famous chefs like Paul Prudhomme and all these different people to extol the virtues of Nutria and try to just get people excited about eating it themselves. And the campaign (laughs) fell flat on its face Uh, because of the stigma, because they look like these giant rats, people were not interested in eating them. So then the state settled on a, a new idea, which was to basically just pay people to hunt Nutria. And the way that you prove that you killed a Nutria is you turn in a tail for $5 at a Nutria tail collection site. Right. And uh, some of the other people that you follow in the film are the hunters and trappers, the Cajuns, the uh, the people who have been down in Louisiana for centuries in the bayous. Yeah, some interesting characters. Thanks. Yeah, we met. I, I mean, Louisiana is this incredible place where you basically just get out of your car and there's this kind of goodwill assumption that, you know, because you're curious, we are happy to tell our story. There's... Um, there were 30 reality shows being filmed while we were down there. So, really? that, so there was a lot of trepidation. They don't, they don't like to be caricatured, of course, and they don't like the way that they're portrayed in these um, reality shows. But Well, I, it, uh, I tend to argue with the term reality TV. I generally uh, call it badly scripted TV. Yeah, it's so boring in a, in a lot of ways, too. It's like these heightened situations, but it, because it's so stiff, wooden, and staged, it's so boring to watch. It doesn't feel like anything is really happening. Also, my mom's family's from Louisiana, oh, northern should... Louisiana. Yeah, yeah. And you look at, say, the Duck Dynasty people, and you realize these are country club people who grew out their beards for TV. That's right. Where the real people are there, and they have an incredible warmth and, and generosity. And um, I actually asked a Cajun friend, coming in there as an outsider, um, if he had any tips for, you know, talking to Cajun people um, respectfully and everything. And he's like, uh, oh, don't worry, you're not going to be talking, <laughs> which is kind of true. I mean, we get out of... They're great the, storytellers. They're incredible storytellers. And, and one, one fellow in particular that you... Uh, yeah. yeah, Thomas Gonzalez was really special because he really is living as, as far down the bayou as you possibly can in the place that's the has no protection from the levees and is completely exposed to hurricanes. He's lost his house three times uh, to hurricanes, and yet something keeps drawing him back to that spot. You know, while everybody else has left, there's something about that particular spot that he is connected to and, you know, and has been through his family for hundreds of years. And so it was really interesting to us to kind of capture Louisiana at this 
moment in time as it's really changing into something very different. I mean, I don't know that Thomas's island is going to be there in 15 years, you know, at the rate of the coastal erosion that's happening. So uh, we really wanted to show this really special, incredible place where people are meeting these challenges, not with despair, but with joy. And they're literally uh, every day living in this kind of with this ecstatic kind of attitude. And yet it really is disappearing and going underwater. How did you get introduced to these people? Are either you or Chris Metzler um, natives of the region? No, and uh, we made the film also with a third guy named Jeff Springer, and none of us are native to Louisiana. I grew up in Idaho, and I live in the Bay Area, and Chris and Jeff lived in the Bay Area when we first got started. And Chris and I are both from rural areas. He's from Missouri. Uh, and so growing up in Idaho, I was around a lot of hunting, but it was a very different culture in the sense of Idaho is a lot more partitioned. People certainly are not in each other's lives in nearly the same way that they are in Louisiana. Now you're touring the film around. Have you uh, taken it down to the deep south, to the Gulf states, and uh, shown it to the people that uh, have been part of the film? (laughs) So, uh, yeah, we we were just in Louisiana in August um, with the Louisiana premiere. And our main subject, so we we had a few people there. We had our, and animals. So we had a stunt nutria there uh, (laughs) named Nudie, who is a, featured in the film. Uh, so she came out and walked the red carpet. Uh, we had a fashion show uh, of a bunch of people wearing the Nutria fashion and coming and uh, showing that off. And then we, of course, had um, our main subject, Thomas Gonzalez, who drove up from Delacroix Island. He hadn't been to New Orleans, even though it's an hour away. He hadn't been there in uh, probably 20 or 30 years. And um, he watched the movie, and he was very... I think, impacted by seeing his life, you know, on the screen. And then when it was over, he got on stage for the Q&A. Um, there was one question that he answered for 20 minutes. <laughs> A great and, storyteller again. Exactly. And then that was the end of the Q&A. And then he sat down and watched the whole film again because there was a second screening. And he got up during the credits and started dancing. He's a huge dancer. Uh, and then he left and went crabbing later that night. And that was it. <laughs> Louisiana is um, very popular with independent filmmakers from Europe and Canada. And yeah, the uh, the late great filmmaker Les Blank made a series of amazing documentaries down there back in the late 20th century um, about the music, about the food, about the culture in general. Uh, back when all of that was really vital, it just seems like um, some of that's uh, starting to, to die off now. It, it is, but it, it and it makes me smile whenever somebody invokes Les Blank because um, he was a friend. I, I is that right? I uh, ate uh, some raccoon stew with him. That was the first time uh, you know I ever met him, and he was just this fixture in the filmmaking scene in in the Bay Area where I'm from. And um, his films that he did in Cajun Country were huge inspirations, you know, in the sense of. It was kind of what we were hoping to do with this film and the approach of just, we're just going to go down there. We're just going to kind of hang out and spend time. And this film will really be um, a chronicle of what all of those relationships were like tied together by the story of the Nutria, right? And um, there are some connections to Les Blank in the film. The family that he was following, the Cajun family, 
Mark and Anne Savoy, uh, their daughter ended up being our photographer for the film. And so Gabrielle Savoy took all of our production stills, and you can see some of her work, which is just incredible. The whole family is are all musicians. They play together with the parents. And uh, there's some Mardi Gras scenes, and there's a very particularly creepy country Mardi Gras scene that's organized by uh, their son, Joel, and that Mark Savoie was at. So I kind of felt this connection to Les Blank, you know, as we were making the film. He passed away a couple of years ago, but uh, definitely was carrying his kind of spirit of curiosity and joy into this. And, and well, yes, I, I think that Louisiana is changing. The culture is still very much alive, and people are still speaking Cajun French and, and still extremely proud of their culture it's just that the reality is is the culture is connected to the place you know and the place is disappearing and so as louisiana continues to disappear and more people transition to working in the oil and natural gas industry as opposed to hunting fishing crabbing and all these different things um it is it is changing and so uh I really can't recommend enough to anyone who's curious about Louisiana to just go down there and just hang out, spend time, take the time to get to know the people and have some long conversations. So um, the film's been getting some really amazing buzz. Thanks. And, yeah. And some uh, award nominations and wins. Yeah. Um, we didn't quite know what the what was going to happen with the film. You know, when you kind of push a movie out there into the world, you just say, oh, here we go, and whatever happens, happens. But we've been really delighted. And it's been in 75 film festivals so far. And, uh, you know, we've won a number of, you know, best uh, documentary feature awards and different kinds of awards at the festivals. And... Um, I think what people are resonating with right now is um, it, it is an environmental film, but it's an it's an environmental film that has some hope and some joy, and um, and that culture of Louisiana allows you to kind of connect to this issue that we hope people care about. It's such a strange topic too, and we really try to take a non judgmental approach that just shows this is a chronicle of what it was like to spend some time down there, and I think that. You know, Louisiana is just has this infectious kind of uh, shine to it. You know, um, there's just something about it that makes people feel really, really good. So um, we're pleased with how it's been received out there. And we're looking forward to it really having a large audience on um, PBS. We're going to be on Independent Lens in January. So that'll be the end of the festival run. So how can people find out more about uh, your film, Rodents of Unusual Size? Yeah, it's uh, rodentsofunusualsize.tv is the website. Uh, you can follow us on Facebook and uh, Instagram and Twitter. And um, if you go to the website, you can see all of our upcoming screenings. And and if you follow us on Facebook, we have updates of all things Nutria, you know, as long as, as well as kind of a chronicle of our adventures around the country with the film. And then uh, also you might want to check out the Facebook page for Nudie the Nutria, who was our stunt Nutria in the film. She's a bit of a diva and she likes a large Facebook audience. Well, Quinn Costello is the co-director of Rodents of Unusual Size, the documentary about the nutria of Louisiana. Quinn, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. And 
And that was our interview with Quinn Costello, the director of Rodents of Unusual Size. Uh, you're listening to The Film Show. I'm S.W. Concert, And we are uh, in the studio now with Ben Pop. He's, uh, he's introing the Northwest Filmmakers Festival. Yes. And uh, Ben, we're also here with Paula Bernstein and Edward Pack Davy, and we want to, uh, yeah, we want to have a conversation about what's going to be happening at the Portland Filmmakers Festival. But first, I want to play a little clip from Don's, uh, from sorry, from uh, Paula's short documentary. It's called Soul Doctor, and it takes place in a cobbler shop here in Southeast Portland. Uh, here's a little clip. Fixing shoes is an art. Shoes that are made now are made to throw away when they wear down, but me and Josh had to learn to fix them, you see, so we could keep on making a living. And Josh, he's my apprentice. Now, I could leave town now, and he could run the shop. He could still have a shoe repair shop on Hawthorne. It'll be Josh's shoe repair. (laughs) You know, until they run us out of here. And uh, uh, Paula, that was a, uh, no spoilers here, but there's a lot that develops during the short documentary that you made called Soul Doctor. Yes, when I first started out making the film, I really just uh, was interested in uh, George. As uh, George is the uh, proprietor of George's Shoe Repair Shop on Hawthorne, and I knew that he had um, run the business for over 50 years. And um, given that Portland cha- is changing so quickly and I'm a relative newcomer, I was interested in hearing some of the past, uh, his past stories about Portland. And very soon I realized that there was um, more, what interested me more was his relationship with his son. But if, I had no idea that there would be um, um, I, again, without a spoiler, but basically uh, George is preparing to retire. And then Josh, his son, who was a modern dancer, um, is preparing to take over the shop. So this is, I mean, what gets talked about in the documentary is that this is the area, this is the era of discardable materials, discardable clothing, fast fashion. So it's almost quaint to have a place that repairs shoes. There are more than one shoe repair places in uh, in Portland. So, uh, but this, this guy is a master of the craft and you sort of, how did you sort of fall into doing this doc? You've been writing about film. You've been working in the business for years and years and years and years, but uh, this is, I, I believe your first documentary. It is my first documentary ever. Um, and I have been lucky enough though, to learn from many of the great filmmakers I've been able to interview over the years. And I've been able to go to documentary film festivals and panels as a journalist, and then really going to Oregon Doc Camp, uh, which I've done for the past few years has really inspired me as well. And uh, Ben, so uh, Paula's documentary is part of a particular event, a part of a series that's happening at the Northwest Filmmakers Festival, and uh, it's definitely something that you're fostering is having these new filmmakers come up from the region. Yeah, so this is part of the uh, uh, one thing that we're doing this year is the Northwest Regional Survey. So um, we got together six different curators from around the region to put together uh, short film programs from their respective state or province. So the the idea being that um, rather than films through the selection process and there being particular things that fall through the cracks, we're really able to present a really nice wide overview of what is happening in the region completely. Yeah, and uh, well, what other things can people expect from the Filmmakers Festival this year? 
Uh, so a few other really fun things is, of course, we have on Saturday the 42nd Fresh Film uh, Festival that is the 13 to 19-year-old um, portion of the Filmmakers Fest. Um, we also have the uh, Northwest Filmmakers Summit, which is a full-day event of vendors, panels, presentations that's free for the public um, that's happening down at the Portland Art Museum on Saturday, November 3rd. We also have a Northwest Exposure, which was an event. It's going to be a live table reading with professional actors, reading seven short film scripts. Um, it's sort of a competition thing. The winning script is going to get a, um, a whole bunch of really amazing prize packages from local production houses and companies. The idea being that from scratch to finish, this person will be able to create a film for free, basically. And then uh, a really awesome opening night party in the sunken ballroom, uh-huh. the Portland Art Museum, Scarioke, a sing-along seance featuring large-scale props and all sorts of crazy fun things. And what screening are you going to be part of, Paula? Uh, so actually, the timing of my screening is, is perfect because it, I think, is because it is in the afternoon following or as par- the same time as the Northwest Filmmakers uh, Summit. Um, and then this, the uh, program that I'm part of was curated by Nora Kali, who's a local independent filmmaker and organizer, and it's called Change, Love, and Rage. And um, I haven't seen all the films in that uh, grouping, but it looks like a terrific selection. Are uh, people going to have a chance to meet you and maybe even the subjects of your film? Yes, I'm very excited that I will be there, uh, as will uh, George and Josh and their families. And uh, I really hope people can come out. I've really encouraged them to invite their friends and families because, as I was saying to Ben, when I set out to make this film, I really made it for the community. And I really it, that was really my goal. And also, hopefully, to bring more people to the film center, you know, and not keep, not make it this, uh, you know, I think some people feel like film festival is too exclusive or something, but it's a film festival for all. And you've got uh, plans after this, right? You're, uh, I mean, you kind of started out in New York. You've done a lot of work for uh, uh, Filmmaker Magazine, and um, you're going to be heading off to New York with the film after this. Actually, the film will be at Doc NYC, but... Uh, I will not be able to be there, but don't don't feel too bad. I'll be in Napa at the Napa Valley oh, nice. Film Festival, so so uh, that that's all good. Well, the other uh, filmmaker we have here to talk about his work, and it's a narrative feature, is Edward Pack Davy. And Edward, uh, the title of your film is Lost Division. Correct. And um, as with Paula, uh, you start out diving into a project and. You come out of it years later, not realizing how long it would take. I mean, in Paula's case, this short uh, documentary took a couple of years. Uh, in your case, uh, it, it, it uh, went in stages over four, five, six years, This uh, the making of this film about World War II. Yeah, that's true. Um, the first first year we shot about half the film, and then we had to wait another year to re- recover and uh, raise more money and yeah and then just a long post-production phase editing it's just takes me a long time i'm slow now you are uh, a veteran filmmaker and you decided to go with analog technology for the story of three soldiers who go awol at the belgian German border during the end of World War II. And uh, tell us a little bit about that and how you really got across that story with 
the technology with the look of the film? Well, uh, one of the characters in the film is a combat photographer, a 16-millimeter uh, combat photographer. And so he's his character is shooting footage along the way. So, And we shot on a, an actual uh, Bell & Howell, the same type they used to, in the war for uh, combat footage. And so that has a timeless kind of uh, authentic look to it. And then I wanted the rest of the film to kind of match that authenticity. And so... Something that looked a little more like the film stock of the time, a little more gritty, uh, a little more crushed blacks. And, you know, I just did some tests and came up with a look that I liked that was uh, seemed appropriate. And uh, that involved some uh, different exposures and processing techniques and such. Well, without giving too much away, mm-hmm. let's talk about the, the characters. This is kind of like, um, it's almost like a, a three-person chamber piece. And one of the characters is a chaplain. And you had read some chaplain journals from World War II. You have veterans in your family. Of uh, your grandfather was a veteran of World War One and World War Two. And you also had a neighbor, an interesting guy who you met and got a chance to interact with, um, who himself went AWOL during World War Two. Yeah, his name was Clifford, and uh, he would just show up in my backyard and start mowing the lawn. And uh, this was maybe a. Uh, 15 years ago or so, and uh, one day we got to talking, and he told me that he he went AWOL, and he uh, got caught, and uh, as a punishment, he was uh, sent to work on a minesweeping boat, like uh, doing the graveyard shift on a minesweeping boat. So that's how that whole idea of the AWOL um, personnel uh, came into my head. And then the... uh the journals, the war journals, the chaplain journals, uh, helped you flesh out the idea of this chaplain who uh, wasn't just comforting the soldiers. The chaplain was often involved in burying the dead, and you see this quite explicitly in Lost Division. Yeah, I was really uh, struck by that. Uh, time and time again, uh, I read about uh, chaplains being responsible for just shall- you know shallow, temporary shallow graves. So there's just a lot of a lot of digging. <laughs> as well as, you know, the usual uh, chaplain stuff that you expect a chaplain to do. There's just a lot of a lot of grave digging. So standing in for uh, the Belgian-German border was the um, Hood River area, uh, agricultural area east mm-hmm. of Hood River. And you had, uh, you obviously had some very patient actors and crew to see you through this really long uh, process of making this film. Yeah, and that's uh, a great part of uh, making films in Portland is the enthusiasm level <laughs> can remain after a five, six-year period. And so I'm eternally grateful for all the help that I got over the years on, on both my films. Now, how can people find out about uh, this film and see it at the Northwest Film Fi- uh, Filmmakers Festival? Well, they can listen to this fine radio show, and, <laughs> and that'll tell them. And then uh, we have uh, the Northwest Film Center has their schedules uh, out and about. And um, and you have a, a website yourself. I got a website and a Facebook event page. Um, yeah. So that's uh, Edward uh, Pack Davy D A V E E. Correct. And uh, Paula, what's uh, your website? Um, I have a website, uh, paulabernstein.com, but there is also a website just for the film, which is souldoctorfilm.com. And that's S-O-L-E, doctor. 
Uh, Correct. Film.com. And Ben, we've got half a minute here. How do listeners find out more about this year's Portland Filmmakers Festival? Sure. The easiest is, of course, going to our website, nwfilm.org. Um, if you click on Festivals, you can find the tab for the Northwest Filmmakers Festival. Click right there. It has all of the programs listed, other side little things, workshops, all the other fun things that are happening. And again, it runs from Halloween through Guy Fawkes Day, October 31st through November 5th. That it is. And passes are only $45 for everything. For everything. Well, thank you so much, everybody, for coming in here. Our guests today are Ben Pop from the Northwest Film Center, along with filmmakers Paula Bernstein, Edward Pack Davy, and Quinn Costello. You've been listening to The Film Show on KBU. I'm SW Concert. Thanks also to the Oregon Media Production Association for their support and collaboration. And thanks to all our listeners on the radio dial and on the web. The audio for this show, as well as our extended interviews, will be available later today on our archive page, kboo.fm slash thefilmshow. And you can keep up with us on Twitter, at kboofilmshow. Now stay tuned for an afternoon of music on your homegrown Portland radio station.